Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. Bill Bynum has spent his entire career leveraging finance and public policy to drive investment in people and communities that have been historically locked out of critical institutions, banks, schools, hospitals, housing. Since 1994, Bill has been doing that work in the Mississippi Delta, leading a set of three organizations under the umbrella of an enterprise called HOPE a credit union, a loan fund, and a policy center. I invited him to the podcast to bring to life the results of the Financial Health Network's 2020 Pulse Report by sharing how the national trends play out in one of the poorest regions in the country. Bill is clear that HOPE and other organizations like his simply cannot meet the full need without the leadership and partnership of both the private sector and the government. Somehow, despite the additional challenges of the pandemic, the economic downturn, and a racial reckoning, Bill remains an unwavering advocate for hope in a just world. Bill, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thanks, Jen. It's great to see you and appreciate you having me join you today. Absolutely. Bill, you grew up in a segregated rural town in North Carolina where you attended a mostly white school. Uh, because your parents wanted to make sure you got a good education. Uh, I tend to believe that leaders who see people in 3D, who have empathy, that that comes from their lived experience. Uh, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your early experiences and how that shaped the man and the leader that you have become. No, it's interesting, Jen. I think we all are products of our experiences, of, of the lives that we lead and the journey that we continue on. I'm, I'm still, I think, evolving in many ways, um, and I hope I continue to. But I was actually born in New York. My family, like many uh, African-Americans, like many Black folks in the, in the 50s and 60s, moved north to get better opportunities, uh, better jobs, less discrimination. And my, my sisters and I were all born in Manhattan. I lived in East Harlem, but in the uh, first grade, the, the challenges in the city made my parents decide to move back to North Carolina. They uh, were from uh, Chatham County, right outside of uh, the Research Triangle, what is now the Research Triangle. But when you get outside of the Research Triangle in North Carolina, I think as you know, spent some time there, it's very rural. It's one of the most rural states in the country. And I lived in a little mill town called Bynum, which was interestingly named after the people who own my ancestors, undoubtedly. Um, it had the largest oh cotton mill in the country um, at one point. Uh, interesting, ironic that um, I later moved to Mississippi, work in the Delta, where a lot of that Cotton was grown, and then uh, the value was extracted back in the East Coast, and not necessarily 
uh, value accrued to the people who put in the labor <laughs> to grow that cotton and um, went to schools, segregated schools until I was uh, in the fifth, sixth grade. Uh, initially, I went to an all-black school in the first and second grade. Education wasn't as strong as what I'd experienced at PS 102 in, in New York. And you know, my parents decided, well, I should go to the all-white school, assuming that that may be better. And it was marginally better, but not as, again, very, very not, not what I experienced in New York. And later, the schools integrated. So I got to know kids on both sides, um, black kids and white kids, and, and eventually became a student leader. Uh, and later went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, had uh, thought about going outside the state. Stanford was on the list, uh, but I, uh, my parents uh, had separated and wanted to stay around and support my mom and my sisters. And, and I went to UNC, got involved in student government, and I thought I was going to be a journalist until I got sidetracked by student government and this community development finance thing uh, got my attention. But when I was young, the Klan every Thursday night would have a, a meeting at a, at a barbecue joint, not a quarter mile from my house. Fortunately, they were not as active as they had been a few years before, but still it was, it was significant. I stayed in a single wide trailer right next to my great grandmother who cooked and cleaned for many of the folks in the uh, community and the kids generally didn't carry a lot of the baggage from their parents, but, you know, some of it spilled over. And, you know, I remember one night my dad and I sitting out on outside with my BB gun and his rifle to ward off the folks who would come by and throw rocks in our window. So, you know, that was the environment. And um, later, again, kids um, that I went to school with and on both sides, uh, we developed good relationships and good friendships and, I think that has served me well through life. But uh, I saw how, uh, how much we had in common, but also saw the disparities in wealth and in opportunity. Um, I think one of my early lessons um, was when my grandmother took me to the credit union that was in the garage of the vice principal's home. It was created so that people in the black community could get basic affordable, responsible financial services because they weren't welcome in the community bank in the town. Uh, and so I saw how important it was for people to pool their resources together to support their neighbors. And, and so, again, I was able to take some lessons from that and have tried to build upon it um, throughout my career. So we have a few things in common because in addition to an interest in journalism, I also was born in New York, uh, but left there at a relatively young age and went south. Uh, we, I grew up in Miami. Um, so I didn't know that. I didn't realize that you were born in New York. Um, that's really interesting. So thank you for sharing about your, your history, uh, your family, and uh, the credit union piece is really interesting. Tell us how you ultimately ended up in Jackson, Mississippi, and also tell us more about uh, how you've built what the, the set of organizations that you now run, uh, known as HOPE. 
No, I've been fortunate to uh, be around really incredible change makers all my life. Uh, when I got out of college, I planned to go to law school. I wanted to be the next Thurgood Marshall, but um, I decided to work for a little, little while, and I ended up at Self-Help, uh, Center for Community Self-Help, which uh, now is one of the largest community development financial institutions in the country. Um, but at that time, we were looking to help businesses that were closing because of uh, the, the owners were relocating outside the country, cheap labor um, and, and, and more profits. And so we tried to help the employees buy the companies and restructure them as worker-owned businesses. But when we went to banks, we couldn't get uh, financing for these blue-collar workers, many who are women and people of color. And so we, started, we decided to start our own financial institution you know, with the deposit from a bake sale, one of the first uh, resources in self-help credit union, which is now a multi-billion dollar um, national powerhouse in the community development space. But, you know, we just started because we wanted to help businesses, be uh, business owners and their workers get treated with respect. And so, again, I saw the value of people pooling their resources together to help their neighbors. And before we knew it, we had more uh, deposits than we had employee-owned businesses. So we expanded to women, rural, minority-owned businesses, eventually affordable housing. And uh, I left there to go to work at the North Carolina Rural Center, um, where we started a microloan program. Uh, I met with Mohammed Yunus, saw the work he was doing in Bangladesh, and thought that if he could be that successful in helping entrepreneurs in one of the most impoverished countries on the planet, we could certainly uh, take some lessons and apply them across rural North Carolina. And we did and, and had been very successful. And at some point, I guess it was in the early 90s, um, uh, a good friend who uh, had moved to Mississippi to start a foundation uh, ex- uh, approached me about the idea of a loan fund to help businesses in the Mississippi Delta. I was at a point in my career where I was looking to expand my experience and it gave me an opportunity to come and create my own, <laughs> hopefully not a mess, but to you know, just to test my ability to take the lessons I learned and apply them in a region where certainly the need was great. Um, a lot of effort had been put into improving conditions in the Mississippi Delta, Arkansas, Louisiana, one of the most impoverished regions in the country. And so I moved here in 94, um, really thinking that, you know, someplace that was in the backyard of President Clinton, who had recently launched the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund in Treasury, a key part of his platform, uh, I was, was hopeful that some of those resources could be tapped to build on um, the work that we were doing. And so we had a million and a half dollar grant from the Pew Charitable Trust and believed that we could transform the economy to Delta. <laughs> and so we, we took off and have been busy ever since. Bill, as you know, last week we released the results of the Financial Health Network's annual Financial Health Pulse survey. Every year, we survey a nationally representative sample of Americans to understand how their financial health has changed over the course of the year and 
how financial health varies based on a variety of socioeconomic variables. In the 2020 report, only 15% of Black people and 24% of Latinx people were found to be financially healthy, compared to nearly 40% of whites and Asian Americans. And I don't need to tell you, but our data shows that people in the South are, have lower rates of financial health than in other regions. I was hoping to bring you on the podcast to help bring life to these statistics because we read them, we're awash in data, and yet we remain unmoved. We've learned about the power of stories from our U.S. Financial Diaries work, and you were an advisor to that work. So help paint a picture of the people of the Mississippi Delta, your customers, and their financial lives. Jennifer, it's, it's really impossible and I, I think quite irresponsible to look at what's going on in people's lives today without looking at what the situation and circumstances were prior to any of us knew what COVID was. We're facing a, a triple crisis. It's, it's a healthcare crisis. It's an economic crisis. And the social justice, the racial division in the country is all linked. Um, certainly that's what my experience and, and has, has, has taught me. If you look at the nation and where racial, where, where slavery was most concentrated prior to the Civil War, the Atlantic uh, had a great map um, a few months back that showed where where, where, where slaveholding was greatest on the eve of the Civil War. If you overlay that map with a map today of where you see the greatest rates of, of persistent poverty, uh, not just the 30 years in a row, which is the federal definition of persistent poverty, where places have over 20% of poverty for, for three decades, but places where you've had a half a century of poverty at extraordinary levels, and if you look at where you have the worst housing conditions, the worst education outcomes, the latest access to healthy food and produce, highest rates of unemployment, lowest wages, fewest bank branches, highest rates of people who are unbanked and underbanked, they are very much the same. Uh, and they also happen to be places where you have the most concentration of uh, people of color, black folk, particularly Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana have uh, are three of the states with the highest percentages of the black populations in the country. And if you think about the work that we do at Hope, I, I've really stopped talking about our work as much as a community development financial institution. The financial resources, financial tools are a means to address these issues. We try to mitigate the extent to which um, things that people can't control, their race, where they're born, uh, their gender, determine their ability to climb the economic ladder. And in all those, in, in whether it's health, education, housing, jobs, at some point you need financial tools. And those are uh, just uh, visibly absent in communities of color. And so that's what we exist to address at HOPE. And I think we have done that, but we are very much a research and development arm of the financial system. We, uh, we are one of the larger CDFIs in the country. 
but we're dropping the bucket relative to need. Now, we're around $600 million in assets, which is great if we were just in Jackson or if we were just in the Mississippi Delta or Memphis or New Orleans or Birmingham or Montgomery or the Black Belt, but we're across five states. <laughs> and so we are we we go into places where these resources don't exist and quite honestly where wealth has been extracted for centuries and where wealth accumulation uh, among people of color has been stifled by law and by practice since before the Civil War. And it's it's really great to hear you uh, talk about um I've heard you talk a lot about silos, but as I mentioned, all these Opportunity ladders, health, education, housing, all tie together, but they all also tie to the financial health of people who live in these communities. Um, Our Policy Institute recently conducted our annual snapshot of the financial condition of the 1,000-plus people that we serve across the region. And we saw that a third of our members have less income than they had before the pandemic. You know, that, that's a big hit. Um, a quarter of our members decided that they worry about paying a debt that they owed every day or nearly every day. Uh, 71% received a stimulus pay, payment, which underscores their need, the need for basic bank, banking services. Um, nearly half were either unbanked or underbanked prior to joining our credit union. Almost 80% of our members are black. Uh, 60% are women. Half of them have incomes below $30,000, $31,000. And so we are working in a region and with people who are on the edge of the economy, and even more so since this crisis, this triple crisis that we're facing. And it is, is really critical that organizations like ours, like ones that you've worked with over the years and the data that you're pulling together are, are equipped to inform policy and practice of those who control resources, uh, both at the private sector and, 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 and policy and public officials as well. So in response to both the pandemic and the economic fallout from that and the racial reckoning that we're experiencing, you know, we've seen the private sector and in particular big banks making significant financial commitments to supporting low-income people and to closing the racial wealth gap. Uh, most recently, we saw J.P. Morgan Chase, for instance, make a $30 billion commitment. Um, you and I both have been engaged with the Business Roundtable as it reckons with its role in racial justice. Um, yet there's a reason that you are still at it at Hope, um, and that despite these commitments, seemingly large commitments, that um, we still have a need for community development, financial institutions like yours in community. Help connect the dots. Why is that? Why, why can't um, uh, the big powerhouse banks that have all the capital uh, why can't they solve this problem? No, I think they can. I think it's a matter of of commitment, of intent, of leadership. Um, I, I am encouraged by what I've heard from the Business Roundtable 
prior to COVID, they updated their statement of purpose. They, they, they asserted that the purpose of a corporation is to, to, to um, support an economy that works for all Americans. And I think that's, that's great, not just their shareholders, but uh, I think that's, that's important that they recognize that and that they take that message to policymakers, but that they infuse it in how they do business. My organization and talked about how we started. I moved from North Carolina after having worked in organizations that had had a good bit of philanthropic support, had had a good bit of bank support, or that there had been some public resources. But the thing that one of the things that drew me to the Deep South was the fact that the CEO of Walmart at that time, Rob Walton, Sam Walton's grandson, was one of the founders that recruited me. The CEO of Entergy, which is the largest electric utility in in Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, was on the hiring committee. And I really wanted to see how the private sector could align its interests uh, with the needs of the communities that they work in and where they where their employers come from that they rely on for revenue. I think uh, Walmart understood that for them to sell stuff, people had to have income, you know, that could pay for it. Um, Entergy sells more kilowatts, the more businesses, the more homes there are. And so I I think that you get more uh, traction when you can align the vested interests. Um, Certainly, you know, there's profits, but there's also the realization that without people who are productive and who can um, support themselves and their families and their communities, you're not going to get the results that all of us desire. And so uh, we, we've been right. able which to is, make some traction. But which is essentially, this is essentially the definition of stakeholder capitalism. You've just described it in a very tangible way. Yeah, it, absolutely. And, and, and unfortunately, it's hard to get that to the, the corporate leaders to focus on that. I've been really encouraged that uh, the BRT has stepped forward. Uh, Members of the BRT have um, made pronouncements about their commitments. I think it's really important, though, that we look at those commitments and make sure that it's not just moving chairs around on the deck, but that these commitments are truly transformational, that it addresses the systemic barriers that I think more and more people acknowledge exist I want to talk a little bit about uh, Netflix. I, I know we, you've been around a long time doing excellent work for a long time, but the Netflix announcement that it was going to pledge 2% of its cash holdings to provide economic opportunity for Black communities uh, uh, got you a lot of attention because they announced that the first $10 million was going to the Hope Credit Union. So tell us a little bit more about how that deal came about. You know, we've been sitting here talking about big banks. I'm not sure Netflix would have occurred to any of us as being a large corporation that uh, might be one that we should be partnering with or or tapping for their capital. Uh, And uh, tell folks who are listening how they and other companies can get involved. No, it was interesting. We had earlier before COVID, before George Floyd, had started to take steps to restructure our balance sheet. When you work in communities like the Mississippi Delta and the Black Belt, you know that there's not enough wealth. 
there's not enough savings in those communities to finance the businesses, the homes, the community facilities that enable people to prosper and to um, support their families and their communities. And, and you know, for example, in Itabino, where we had the Fed share in 2019, boy, it seems like so long ago. Um, um, but if we had every deposit in that community, it would just be one and a quarter million dollars. It's clearly not enough to to offset the challenges that Delta Towns face. And so we supplement those deposits by bringing in resources from depositors outside of the outside of our region, and often that's certificates of deposit, which are more costly than savings and checking accounts. So our cost of our cost of capital is significantly higher than our peers, and so we have to we have to supplement that by going out and raising. Grants in a region where you've got forty dollars per capita philanthropic giving compared to four thousand in Silicon Valley, three thousand in New York, four hundred fifty dollars per capita U.S. forty dollars. So there's just not a lot of philanthropic resources here, and neither are there bank branches are making ERA investments in places like the Delta. And so we had to go to. Uh, wherever we could to get CDs, which are higher cost. And so we had created this product that we call Transformational Deposits. We're asking mission investors, social investors, to make a uh, deposit in a insured depository at 10 basis points. You know, there's a lot of cash in the economy now. Um, and so we were starting to get traction on that. And in April, I think it was, April or May, Got a call from Aaron Mitchell, who's in the Human Resources Department at Netflix, who had read The Color of Money and had uh, been talking to his colleagues at Netflix about doing more to address some of the challenges that we're, uh, we're experiencing in, in, in America these days. And he saw that, you know, $5 billion in cash holdings, you know, they had an opportunity to put some money into frontline institutions like black banks and credit unions that were um, serving people in places that traditional banks were not. Um, and, and I was, we had mutual acquaintances and I was really excited to get a call from Aaron to ask if this would be something that would be helpful. So a $10 million deposit from Netflix came out of that, oh, 10 basis points, uh, it's a liquid deposit. It's their deposit. It's not a grant, but they can get their deposit when they need it, but they've not needed to tap their cash holdings ever. And so this is relatively stable uh, money. And there are a lot of other companies that have cash holdings that could be used to invest in development in under-resourced communities. You know, the deposits are great, but as you know from your banking experience, you also need equity. Uh, and so we've encouraged, in addition to the deposits, many of these companies have philanthropic arms. If we had 10% of the deposit as, as equity, you know, we could, it could support our capital position, but also give us money to reinvest in development in underserved communities. We've had, you know, Chipotle has followed with a transformational deposit. We're having conversations with many others. We've had individuals who have made deposits. Um, and 
while up to $250,000 is fully insured by the full faith and credit of U.S. government, obviously Netflix were comfortable making a $10 million deposit. They looked under our hood and kicked the tires and felt that our management and our um, operations were solid. So we've been talking a lot about the role of the private sector, but as you know, private capital alone isn't going to solve the enormous structural challenges facing this country. Lay out the policy agenda for us that you think is required to address the systemic barriers to financial health and ultimately community health and success. Now, I think it aligns with what we were saying that the private sector should do. We've got to be intentional about investing in people and places that have systemically been denied the ability to build wealth and to support their families and to be a productive uh, citizen. And when you, you know, home ownership and entrepreneurship are two of the most um, sure ways to close the racial wealth gap. But again, when you have such disparities in ability to access the resources to, to become a homeowner or an entrepreneur, then you're not going you're not going to get the outcomes that I think we all want. Uh, and so, public policy has an important role to play in that. Um, down payment assistance, for example, is when you have such wealth, when you have a 100 to one wealth gap. Uh, you, got, you can't afford a down payment. You've seen actions that undermine what you and I probably thought were, 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 were settled doctrine, like the Community Reinvestment Act that requires banks to reinvest in communities and fair housing laws and disparate impact that doesn't require that you have a smoking gun to prove if you have a pattern of discriminatory practice, then banks are required to address those patterns. But those uh, laws and policies are under attack now. And so I think that we've got to see a reversal of the, the, the destruction of these critical protections and policies that help make sure that people have equitable and fair access to financial resources as I said, is is I don't I don't I don't look at us just as a financial institution, but financial resources are critical to closing the disparities. And housing and entrepreneurship are game changers. The one hundred the, the ten to one wealth gap that you see between black and white households is only three to one for black entrepreneurs relative to white entrepreneurs. It's not equal where it should be but it's a lot better than 10 to one. It's a lot better than 100 to ones. But when you've got 1% of um, SBA loans in Arkansas going to black entrepreneurs, you know there are some policy changes that need to be made. And so um, we need to restructure the Small Business Administration and, hold, and make sure it's more accountable to closing those gaps. We need to look at HUD and make sure that policies protect homeowners and that resources are made available to make homeownership more accessible. We need to look at Fannie and Freddie um, and make sure that they're affirmatively furthering fair housing um, provisions that drive them to make housing more accessible in rural and underserved communities. 
is supported and not uh, undermined. I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel. Um, we know what works. We've seen tools that work. Um, unfortunately, we've seen some movement that undermines those critical supports. And I think we as individuals need to hold our policymakers accountable. You know, it's unfortunate that, you know, every, you know, it seems like every other day we're in the middle of a new election and that divides people. I think most people will go into policy to support their communities, but the but we also know that um, it, it, as soon as you start having to uh, distinguish yourself from your opponent and raise money, you see a lot of division. I think it's up to us as 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 citizens of this country to try to get the election system to a better place and to remind policymakers that you know we don't send them there to run for election again. We send them there to address the needs that we face and. Boy, the needs are great, greater now than I think they've ever been. So, Bill, you have been at this a long time. And as we talked about earlier, the challenges and inequities faced by the Mississippi Delta are centuries old. These are not new challenges. But, you know, recent events have certainly shown a spotlight on these issues. And the country seems to be undergoing a shift towards more understanding and appreciation of how systemic racism continues to shape the financial lives of communities of color. Is it different this time? Are you optimistic? Do you feel like we've got a narrow window before the country does what it has done in the past and simply moves on before the work is done? How are you feeling in this moment? You know, it's funny. I've, I've been asked that a few times recently, and I've told people that I, I, I think I'm a masochistic optimist. Um, <laughs> you know, been doing this work almost almost four decades, and I've seen what can happen when people have the tools that they need to support their families. Uh, I know that people in the Delta, people in the Black Belt, people in you know, in Appalachia, in Indian country, on the U.S.-Mexico border, when they have the tools, they can do anything that anyone else can do, but those tools just aren't really available. I've seen, though, that, you know, organizations like CDFIs, community development corporations, nonprofits, woefully under-resourced, can make a difference um, and, and can get people to a much better place. I think that uh, I've heard community development financial institutions, minority financial institutions talked about more in the past six months than I've heard and talked about in my career. And so that's encouraging. Uh, And so I will, I will, I will err on the side of optimism uh, and do everything I can to make sure that the lessons, the voices of the people uh, in the communities that I work are, are brought to the decision makers, whoever um, I, I can get an audience with, and make sure they know, um, you know, the data that you shared about the financial lives and, and, and the information that we get from our member owners, and, 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 and remind them that that's that's who they were sent to Washington and to state houses to serve. That's who businesses depend on 
to support their shareholders and to generate profits. And, and if we're going to do it in a sustainable way, it's got to be done in a more respectful way that helps everyone succeed and not just a few, a privileged few. Bill, thank you for your ongoing leadership and thanks for joining us on Emerge Everywhere. No, thank you for what you're doing. It was a pleasure to talk with you. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.